This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today's episode of Mother Folklore is brought to you by the show's generous supporters on Patreon. This very week, we made a bonus episode for Patreon supporters in which Shamim De Bruyne, who you might remember from our wine episode, rejoined us and spoke to Patter and I about whiskey. Speaking of emotionally complex, whiskey. Whiskey is emotionally complex. <laughs> I have one here. I get emotionally Ooh. complex after enough That's whiskey. based on the nice, lovely tradition of writers in Ireland because uh, writing and, and whiskey, and they go they really go hand in hand uh, because the tortured Irish artist with an alcohol issue is a is a stereotype that is often portrayed in uh, in in media, but uh, it shouldn't put you off. This actually really good and very affordable mm. whiskey. Go to patreon.com forward slash Derek for more. And now the show. From the Headstuff Podcast Network, welcome to Mother Folklore, a podcast about words, Irish, Irish words, and words from Ireland. I am Derek O'Shea. And I'm Padre O'Quay No, I'm not. I'm Geraldine <laughs> McAvoy. <laughs> How are you getting on there, Gargi? Yeah, I'm good. Hopefully my new mic is working. Um, I have a brand new mic and I'm very excited by it. Uh, I had the new mic in the last few episodes that I did, but I wasn't using it correctly. <laughs> so hopefully my sound is good. Um, yeah. It certainly is. And a big thank you to our Patreon supporters for allowing us to get professional equipment so we can sound good enough for you to listen to. <laughs> Yeah, I'm very excited by it. I had a little cry when it came in the post because I was like, oh, they, they, they supported me enough to get a mic. <laughs> um, it looks very profesh when I have it all set up. Fantastic. Excellent. Um, and we are, you know, we, we are in December at the moment. It has happened. We finally, we're, 2020 is nearly, is nearly out the door, you know, but it's I just know. kind of walking back in, you know, forgetting it's coat. You just get that the fuck out of here. But... <laughs> But that does mean that some some of the old favourite Christmas ads are back on TV. I know. I love them. It's I love a good Christmas ad. And I love, I don't mind people recycling old ads if they're good ads. Do you know what I mean? I love a good Christmas ad. I loved the Christmas ad where, do you remember, was it Meteor where the guy made snow for his girlfriend? Um, I loved that ad because I'm a big soft eater. <laughs> I love the McDonald's ad where the little girl wants carrots for the reindeer's. Um, yeah, I just love a good Christmas ad. 
Absolutely. It's become a, a weird tradition in a way, because, I mean, um, at one level, we, we understand that advertising is, is all about selling your products, but at the same time, there is a capacity for, I mean, for beauty and for entertainment within advertising. Some of, or somebody saying that some of the actual best design in, uh, the, in the 1890s was actually coming out of actual, you know, advertising rather than you know, as, as much as much as any other kind of form of art and that's a lot of expressions that we think are old proverbs are actually old advertising slogans from the 1910s yeah and if you've watched mad men you'll get very romantic about advertising <laughs> yes. but it's true my, my, my dad says things all the time he says i was no beauty but i was that day from the barry's tea ad he mm. says who's taking the horse to france all the time would you like some more no hey dad who's taking the horse to france Sally O'Brien of the way she might look at you. Um, yeah. All of those, like he's just going to like randomly come out with these things. But I think, I don't know, is it specific to Ireland? I doubt it. But well, um, this like sort of cultural phenomenon associated with advertisements that people just remember these like lines from ads. I think Waltzing Matilda was originally an advertising jingle. Or No. And what? Awesome. Incorrect. Waltzing Matilda is based on the Scottish ballad Thou Bonnie Wood of Craigie Lee. But, but also more interestingly, the phrase that I always thought was a proverb, always the bridesmaid, never the bride. It was actually from a Listerine ad. What? Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's true. That's insane. Oh, my God. <laughs> I did not know that. Um, but it has such an impact on our lives. Um, mm -hmm. Again, like if you watch Mad Men, it's, it's on Netflix. I recently started watched the whole thing because I hadn't watched it when it was on. Mm. Um, I'm sure there's an awful lot of children who were unfortunately named Donald when it ended um, <laughs> then maybe their parents regretted that now but um, there is an awful lot of like advertisements they talk about like really like well-known advertisements particularly evident is the Coca-Cola ad which is the the I'd like to buy the world of Coke that song which ends yeah. off the whole series mm. and just how impactful they can be and I think you know while globally there's impactful ads you know in Ireland as well we've had our fair share of like culturally significant adverts. Very much so. And this is something that I've been, been looking into, the, the significance of our advertising. And one of the ways is because Ireland for, for so long had maybe had one television channel and one television station and it was you know, and get it and it was getting getting inside the door of, of that was was a tough business. The actual production of ads was one of the places where independent uh, filmmakers even for even those thirty-minute sex slots had a, had an opportunity to be nimble, to be creative, to take little risks in a way they wouldn't have been allowed to for a large series. And while well, in the nineteen eighties, RT did have some excellent productions. I'm thinking Strumpet City in particular. There was, I mean, there were, there were probably more opportunities for people who maybe didn't have a, didn't have an RT connection or who were actually in a position to say, if this goes wrong, it's only an ad. If it goes right, it's great. In a way that maybe RT producers weren't allowed at the time. Yeah, no, it's very true. There is so many, um, like, like even little movies that, like, ads that have become so culturally significant. I, I mean, I'm thinking of the Guinness ad with Michael Fassbender, which probably launched mm. his career, where he, you know, went allegedly. The, the story of the ad is that he swam across the Atlantic to apologise to his brother or yeah. whoever in New York. Um, and the song associated with that ad then became huge as well. Um, and yes, Mick Christopher, a yeah. of Patter's old classmate, well, not classmate, schoolmate from no years. Was well, he was yeah. he was he was in the, the same school, but years years earlier, because obviously there's yeah. that Patter's only a young fellow. It's only a child, yeah, <laughs> a baby, <Bobby. laughs> a chiseler. <laughs> 
But yeah, so that was that was a massively significant, and it was a great uh, the the director of that ad, uh, Nick Kelly was his name. He was in a band in the eighties called the Fat Lady Sings, who has a great a great song called Arclight. But they were, it, it was part of that that music scene in the in the late eighties, early nineties when every rec- big record label in the world was coming to Dublin to look for the next U2. And Alan Parker, yeah. around the time's commitments, had said, you know, Dublin is a city of a thousand bands. And there was a, a Rolling Stone article about Dublin's music scene. And and there was a, there was a lot of people there who, you know, who were, who were a lot of bands were nearly huge, but didn't quite, you know, didn't yeah. quite get across the line. And possibly because Nick Kelly was from that scene, he and he went on to work in advertising, had a very successful career as a director of ads and some some independent films as well. But he would have not obviously known Mick Christopher from the Mary Janes and from that music scene. And and after Mick Christopher died, it was it was nice to actually promote them, give his give allow his music to live even through that ad. Yeah, no, it was wonderful. Yeah. Um but I think uh, what what we myself and yourself have been kind of chatting about for the last while. I mean, uh, as you said, you've been interested in this for a while, but um Something that struck me on my way to get lunch the other day um, <laughs> was if people remember, I'm sure they do, if you lived in Ireland in the last 15 years, I'm sure you remember the, I'm pretty sure it was Carlsberg ad, um, where these guys are, the premise is these guys are in a bar, I think in Brazil, is it yeah, like Brazil. Rio or something? Yeah, um, and they are in a bar trying to impress people and they're being asked to like do an Irish dance or like do some sort of thing to like demonstrate their Irishness and they're stumped and then suddenly one of them starts coming out with Cunis Boher Colleen Banya mm. which if you're not familiar is Silence Road uh, Girl Milk and it's just a stream of he just comes out with a stream of Irish words he says Sharon Niviola and Toscamal Sespair Toggianzi Aram Sharon Niviola of course a newsreader <laughs> Hmm. Um, and they they tell the people uh, that they're talking to that oh this is an Irish poem, and that sort of like gets wins them praise or whatever. Um, and this ad is like really really I think significant because it's an international brand, you know, Carlsberg not being an Irish brand, mm-hmm. but that made an ad very specific to the Irish context. I'm sure they were doing it in other countries at the time, um, and it was the use of Irish that I think was so so interesting and so interesting to me. I found. Um, and uh, it's just such a, it was such a cultural touch point. I remember on Spalpin Fanach in uh, Spittle in uh, Galway, which is like a, this is like a store that they sell like clothing and stuff. They're actually doing Irish language masks, I think, at the minute. Um, cool. And they, they were selling sweaters with Thog Yanzi Urim and you could get Cunis Boher Kalim Banya on the Gansey, on the, the hoodie. Um, and it just became such a huge thing that people would just say that all the time. Um, and and just sort of took over it was kind of one of the first times that I I'd seen Irish used in that sort of iconic advertisement way. Yeah, I think those um that was obviously it was it was during the the Celtic Tiger maybe when those uh, there was a moment of, of and Irishness was a thing was being used as a way for a brand to I guess present themselves as local enough and this is a localization in advertising is is obviously a, a big thing there was a, at the same time as this I remember Vodafone had an ad out and I had the Dandy Warhol song Bohemian like you and that the, the oh, Vodafone yeah. slogan was how are you but and then the Irish they put it in Irish version just with Vodafone can also talk to that's true. And, yeah. And fairness, they they use the same ad. They just changed that little bit. But it was it was, yeah. it was a moment of 
that maybe that, that some people would have found, would have appreciated and that, or that they thought that it was worth doing. They thought that making that extra effort of having an, a version with, with the Irish in it was, was worth doing. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, Coca-Cola did that as well when they, you know, you can get the like Coke bottles with a name on them. Mm-hmm. Um, they did ones with Irish names, but they also did like Drafur, Drahar, like brother or sister or whatever, like Cara. Um, so you could get them for your friend or your brother or whatever, your sister, um, which again, localization and the use of Irish in advertising, which I think is really unique. But I think to have the cultural touch point of an ad, um, it was so interesting. And I think it's interesting in terms of like the way we look at Irish and the way we see Irish to see it in this way. So I'm sure a lot of our listeners are Irish people who found themselves in a bar in I don't know, Santa Panza and started speaking Irish with her mates, having never done that before in Ireland. And it's this really, really fun thing, I think, that's so unique. I mean, I went to college with, in in my final year in college, uh, I was the only one living in my house uh, studying Irish and I lived with seven other girls and uh, it was a bit chaotic. But um, that following year, a bunch of the girls went to live in London and having never had any interest in Irish before, I remember that one of them actually started taking Irish classes when she was in London because suddenly her Irishness became really important to her um, and her use of the language became really important to her. And I was having conversations with this person who had lived with and has been a friend for years who was never interested in Irish before. Um, and I think very often when we are presented with our otherness, when we are away, when we're, you know, when you're in Ireland and you're Irish, it's not a question of whether or not you're Irish. You know, that's not the identifying factor. Yeah. Um, and I think particularly with Irish people, very often we're mistaken for British people, which we don't take to very well. Yeah. So it's very important for us to sort of like single ourselves out and make sure people know that we're different. And one of the ways that we do that is through the use of Irish. And then it's also really handy to have a conversation about somebody when they're not in the vicinity um, or when they're in the vicinity and in a language that's essentially secret. But um, I have seen people do that when I'm around. I was in Croatia one time at a beach and some guy was having a conversation with his wife in Irish. It wasn't about me, but I was like, you're, you're actually not, you are being overheard right now. <laughs> um, so cat, you have to be careful. <laughs> cat's mothering. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, no, because there was the, actually, I think it was, um, was it, was it Forrest Nagelga or uh, Shock Nagelga? A few years back, they had uh, two women in, in a um, in a cafe talking about a lad they fancied, but they were doing it in Irish because they thought they'd get away with it. And then he starts speaking Irish to them. Oh God, never do it! You're not <laughs> going to get away with it. It's, it's <laughs> never, never worth it. <laughs> <laughs> so, what do you think, Gary? What does this say about? A, can we draw a larger significance from this to our people's relationship with the Irish language in general and? And how, 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 how brands engage with that? Yeah, uh, well, I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and I have done it. Um, and I think it's really, really interesting. Um, and I thought of that when I was thinking about this on my way to get lunch the other day, um, I was thinking about um, Goffman, who, Irving Goffman, who's a, a noted sociologist. If anyone has ever taken a sociology class, I'm sure if you were listening enough, you would have heard mention of Goffman. Um, and if you watched that Netflix show, which I think is fantastic, Mindhunter, um, it's got, um, oh my God, your man who's in Hamilton, Jonathan Groff. Oh yeah, Groff, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he plays um, Holden uh, Ford, like the main character. Um, and they talk very often, Dr. Wendy Carr, who is my, uh, the closest 
representation of me there will ever be on screen because she's doing sociological research based on crime. (laughs) (laughs) And she's using Goffman as her theoretical underpinning. Um, But they mention Goffman all the time. And Goffman was this Canadian um, sociologist. uh, And he talked about the self and the presentation of the self. His two, I suppose, most famous texts are uh, The Presentation of the Self in Everyday Life and Stigma, um, Notes on a Spoiled Identity. Uh, and both of these are about how we perceive ourselves and how we present ourselves and the concept of identity. And I think it's really relevant to this because he talks about otherness. He kind of like is the daddy of the the concept of being different and being othered mm-hmm. and how that's, you know, very much a, a changeable thing. So me being Irish, as I said, is not terribly important when I'm living elite. But when I'm living, you know, outside of Helsinki, it's very important to me to make sure that people know that. Um, but at least, at least they misinterpret me as English or American, um, mm. which I would never be having. But he talks about this concept of performance and presentation and how we're constantly performing our identity. So, so we're essentially a little bit like Shakespeare said, like all the world's a stage and you're, you know, knocking around on the stage performing. And that's what we are doing. We're just presenting a version of ourselves. Um, and how that version is perceived then is different. So like the version I present of myself is not necessarily the version that you understand of me. Hmm. Um, and he talks about over and under communication of language. And it's very much informs research on passing, which is really common in like LGBTQ spaces, but other spaces as well. And how like people will pass as a certain way in order to sort of survive and protect themselves. Very much so, and, and it's, you think I suppose sometimes with um, with passing, there's the idea of, of giving little clues to people who are passing as no, as normal when you're different, and then or then maybe at other times when you're emphasizing that difference. And sometimes it's it's a case of giving tiny little clues. And sometimes when a person is is passing in a larger community, that they are either looking for for looking for little signs. It's the the relationship with their cultures is down to kind of yeah, looking out for other other people like yourself. Yeah, exactly. And it's really funny, like I'll do that in an email. So I'll always start an email with a Cara. No matter mm. who I'm writing to, I will always start it that way. And very often or not very often, every now and then that sort of indicates to another person. It's like like my virtual phone. Yeah? It indicates to a person that you can respond to me in, in Irish. Um, but uh, it's not always evident then to, to everybody. It just seems like a greeting for other people that very, very often people use. Or, for example, a fáinne, um, you know, wearing the little fáinne to, to let Irish speakers know that, you know, you can converse with me in Irish. But then I think a really interesting side effect of that is, you know, we talked about the, the Carlsberg ad and how Irish was seen as this, Irish was used as this performance, right? They were performing for the people in the bar. Yeah. Um, but I think to bring it back to like everyday use of Irish, and if I'm wearing a fáinne, for a lot of people who maybe don't speak Irish or who don't see Irish speakers beyond the performativeness, they see my wearing a fáinne as like, oh, it's a performance, right? She's letting me know she can speak Irish. She can do the little jig if if I want her to, <laughs> essentially. Yeah. Or it can be seen in, in a, maybe a negative light that, oh, she's showing off because she speaks Irish. When in actual fact that, and, and that was what I was saying about the internal identity, not necessarily matching the external identity. Mm-hmm. So people might see negative things or less positive things about your performance or your over communication of your um, identity. Um, and then that can sometimes result in under communication. You know, if I was to go into a room with 
50 people who I knew were hostile about Irish or who I knew were giant misogynists. Mm. Maybe I'm not mentioning that I'm a feminist in that particular scenario. Maybe mm. I'm getting the hell out of there as quickly as possible. Yeah. Um, you know, or, you know, you're not mentioning that you speak Irish in that context just for your own passing safety abilities. And that's obviously easier to do in so, for some people than others. I mean, passing for, you know, a person of colour when they're trying to escape racism. Not necessarily that easy when you're looking at somebody. Um, um, and, you know, it, it varies and, and, and such. It's not always negative. But I think very often we see Irish in this performative way because, like you said earlier, right, the brand usage of Irish. And I don't just mean the Carlsberg ad or the Vodafone ad, but, like, you see places like On Post or Bordnagon or... Um, uh, Fault Ireland even or uh, Board Gosh um, these are all like Irish institutions some state funded some semi-state funded uh, some private who use Irish in their name right mm-hmm. to signify themselves as being Irish but if I call up I don't know on post and I start speaking in Irish they might not have a person to deal with me okay or yeah. they might not they don't they're not an Irish language business and all of these businesses that I mentioned or these corporations, they're not really Irish language services. Yeah, they might have the service available in Irish, but their predominant working language is English. And so their use of Irish in that context is very performative. That's an interesting point in that. Uh, it comes down to the idea that is that the, the idea that I've, I've, once you see Irish as something that's performed, that is presented, that's ornamental, it almost reinforces the idea that, that getting the Irish in the name is all it's for. And Exactly. Yeah, so it's it, in that, that sense, it becomes like a, a tattoo in a language you don't speak. Um, <laughs> yeah, I like that analogy. <laughs> yeah. It is, but it is that. And I think that can often cause confusion then and legitimate confusion for people. Like, I'm not going to say that everybody who thinks that Irish is a waste of money is is just being an asshole, because that's not necessarily the case. Because when you've never like encountered an Irish speaker in the wild or maybe have only encountered one, you're like, why is there, why are they bothering spending money on this? Like, I get that legitimate concern. And I think part of that is the way, as a society, we have sort of tokenized Irish. Um, uh, Bernadette Walsh, and I think, um, uh, no, sorry, not Bernadette Walsh, Bernadette O'Rourke and John Walsh um, have written on this. They're based in NUIG, I believe. I know John Walsh is, I'm not so sure about Bernadette. Um, but they've written about like the tokenism of, of Irish and um, how it can be. I think I've mentioned it before, how very often Irish is like, you know, you start a speech with a horja. Or when the Queen came to Ireland, she said, oh, Dronach is a Corja. And everyone was like, wow. And then she switched to English. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she wasn't given the whole thing in, in in Irish. Although that was, to bring it back to the crown, which we talked about, that was a, um, a, a plot in season three of the crown where Prince Charles sort of saved Wales by giving a speech in Welsh, which he oh. learned off the sounds of it. <laughs> like, and like the the interpretation was, oh, the Welsh nationalists were fine. And I was like, mm, that's where I wanted the, the, you know, they're talking about the fiction warning yeah. on, on the crime. That's where I wanted the fiction warning. <laughs> it's interesting you mentioned that, the idea of, of learning it phonetically. And this is something, and you mentioned passing, and it's something that I've, I find is really interesting in the idea of, say, of, of maybe people whose who's, um, who's difference isn't immediately visible. And as you mentioned, LGBTQ people who you may not, yeah. a person may not be able to tell straight away. And similarly, being an Irish speaker, but also being Jewish. I remember Aaron Sorkin was talking about when he made his bar mitzvah, uh, he 
he didn't speak Hebrew and he hadn't been learning it. Uh, he, was, he was in a mostly secular family and yeah. they, he found a he found a rabbi who would who recorded the sounding of the reading he needed to learn for his bar mitzvah and just he learned it phonetically. Yeah. And, and some critics were, were pointing at this interview saying this is like this is a, a, a like a metaphor for for his entire career you know he just he makes up the sound of sounding intelligent and he doesn't actually know what he's talking about and this and you're really really laying into him and I was speaking to other friends who actually had been through the experience and they said well that's that's not unusual at all like it's 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 not what he what yeah. he did is is, is is fairly widespread and some people have maybe have, have a relationship with Hebrew that's maybe similar to our relationship with Irish and yeah. again, without without maybe the resentment necessarily of a of a state putting it on them, but maybe the different expectations. And it's and you do hear sometimes this idea that that some people have a relationship with a language that isn't a first language, but is culturally significant, and they have to reconcile how they do that if it's it's not the language they think in or they swear in when they hit them when they stub their toe. Yeah, exactly. And it's that's a really interesting point, actually. Um, because I think the difference between the Aaron Sorkin example and like you see it with a lot of um, uh, Latinx Americans who maybe don't speak Spanish or their parents didn't pass on Spanish to them because like uh, Julian Castro spoke about it when he was running for president um, about how like it wasn't taught to him or his twin brother because he had to learn Spanish as a second language because it was really damaging to learn that language. And I think it, what people aren't considering when they're considering the the Aaron Sorkin example is like the hegemony associated with that and like being Jewish, being a minoritized person and speaking minoritized language in a hostile environment and what that means. The difference between... Um, Prince Charles is, well, he's not Welsh and mm -hmm. he is the hegemony. <laughs> he's yeah. the one who's causing the oppression. Um, so I think that particular storyline, yeah, that rubbed me a little bit the wrong way. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, which, which I thought was very much that that was a performance of Welsh, right? That was me going to go and or Prince Charles going to go. I don't know if that actually happened. I have no idea if that really happened, but it kind of sounds like something they do. <laughs> um, <laughs> But, you know, that was a mm. performance. I'm going to go, I'm going to perform Welsh. I'll learn off the language, the sound of the language, and then I'll forget about it forever because, I mean, look, he may speak Welsh. I don't know. But again, he's the problem. Mm. Um, but I, uh, you know, I'm going to perform this for the people so that they'll stop being so mad at us and want to and, and wanting to secede. So um, I think, um, you know, there's a very much a difference between uh, the power involved and the position of the speaker in that context. And you see that a lot in Northern Ireland where people will call Irish their mother tongue or their native language when they don't speak it. Um, and I mean, it's not my mother tongue, but I call it my mother tongue. I have my relationship with it is, is definitely different than what you might anticipate. Um, but it's for me, it's not a performance, but I'm sure for a lot of people who've heard me, they have perceived it as a performance. And I think any Irish speaker who's ever experienced somebody coming up to them <laughs> When they're having a conversation with somebody in Irish, as they do, like when Pather and I meet each other in the street, we talk in Irish. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but if somebody was to come up to us, as has happened to me on several occasions, somebody comes up and said, God, isn't it great to hear you speak in the Irish? And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> like, OK, mm -hmm. um, because it's seen as like, you know, streetwide art in a sense. And people don't mean any harm by that. And I'm not trying to criticize people for that because I don't think it's necessarily people's fault. I think there's very much a societal issue with that because of the way that Irish has been used since the um, since the establishment of the Republic. Um, you know, it being very much, it was, it was pushed forward 
um, by Dev and Co as uh, going to be the official language, which it is, and being used as a separator from Englishness as this creation of a new, very much separate identity. But that sort of very quickly became symbolic and performative and tokenistic, which is unfortunate in a sense. Mm. We'll be right back after this message from another fine headstuff show. Hello, Joe Rooney here. Back in 2015, I recorded my first Potter Rooney. And since then, I've been chatting to people that I meet throughout my travels here and there all over the world, including Sean Locke, Mary Coughlin, Frank Kelly, Joanne McAnally, Owen Colgan, Shazia Mertza, Aidan Gillen and Kautia Reardon. But loads of people you'd never heard of who have very interesting tales to tell including the sadly no longer with us Boston-based comedian Barry Crimmins, who led a crusade against images of child abuse on the internet, Tracy Carroll, whose daughter Willow has the highest grade of cerebral palsy, Drogheda Homeless Aid, Christine Volset, a Norwegian singer-documentary maker who ended up hanging out with the young lads in inner city Dublin and riding bareback on a horse through the city streets. All these very interesting tales to tell, and all you have to do is skip the first six minutes of me talking rubbish. That's Potteroni. If you want to contact the show, you can send a voice note to the number in the show notes on WhatsApp. Listen to this message we received recently from a listener. Hi, motherfucker. I have to say, I really, really love the podcast. Uh, I've been in Sweden for seven years now. Before that, I was in Germany for five, then I've been in France. I left Ireland back in 2000, but recently I've been yearning to... Anyway, you know the old yearning. You talk about it a lot on the podcast. Let's not talk about that and waste time now. I'm a bit nerdy about Gaelga at the moment. Like, I've got the other languages of the places that I live in and lived in, but I keep coming back to Gaelga, and it's really close to my heart. And I love finding the similarities between the different languages, like... In Swedish, for example, to say, I'm doing well, you say, Yomo bra. And of course, in Irish, you say, Tommy bra. And bra is like, it means the same thing in both. And you know, when you find those like words that mean the same thing, and you're like, was it the Vikings? I've sometimes been asked, where where can I go? By people visiting Dublin, where can I go to hear people speaking Irish? And I was like, well, that's, it's kind of weird to. <laughs> It's kind of weird to, you know, that, that, that maybe the idea that Irish speakers are kind of, are there for your kind of enjoyment or entertainment is one thing if you want we're to. We're there get, for the zoo. Yeah, we're in the zoo. There's a little enclosure where we are. <laughs> and yeah, and, and I remember when there was, there was the, one, one of the criticisms uh, or one of the, one of the points in that article that prompted Patter and, and Oscar to go ahead and start the first Paul Gelt. It was, was, was a fellow saying that he had never hear Irish spoken in Dublin. You do. Of course you do. But, uh, but the idea that I suppose that, Again, that even people, people who are actually using Irish naturally, they're, they're still expected to perform. Yeah, exactly. And it's so bizarre. Like, w- w- again, it's it's Schrodinger's Gael, right? When I'm on the Lewis speaking Irish, I'm being an arsehole who's displaying the fact that she can speak Irish. I'm showing off. Mm-hmm. That's not everybody. That, there is some people who will react that way. Um, but then when I'm not speaking Irish, no one speaks Irish. You know, there, there's no winning in that. Um, and I think that's really unfortunate. Um, you know, I saw somebody tweet the other week, that no one speaks Irish in their homes, which I thought was just profound because you don't know what people speak in their homes. You got a microphone in everyone's home. Um, you know, I think I thought it was such a bizarre thing that, but such an individual reaction to 
I, I suppose, an, a, a minority that because I don't see it, it doesn't exist. Um, well, yeah. the, 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 unless Siri is really is, is feeding this information back to news talk. Yeah. <laughs> all, all the microphones. Oh. Okay, yeah. If that research ever gets proven, God, the research will no longer exist because we'll exist in a dictatorship with no independent thought. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it won't get proven because people do fucking speak Irish. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> of course they, of course they like, do. Like, there's a lot of research flying in the face of a lot of the arguments made on a particular radio station every now and then when they've run out of things to talk about um, and they decide that they're going to flag that dead horse again. Um that they just ignore and just re- rehash the same things again. Um, like, hello, I have, here's my research. Do you want it? You can have my research, but no one's ever called me. About it. <laughs> it's it's funny, I suppose. It'll be interesting to see if the, if, if these issues are still discussed the same way in five years' time or if, if, you know, if a podcast like our own will have will have actually possibly made any impact in the actual, like every news story is a story. It has, it, it, has, it follows the storytelling rules. You know, there's, um, and this is why, you know, um, like one particular type of of money waste or something or inefficiency in one government department can can really you know catch fire and go viral and in other place it doesn't because you know a story has a beginning middle and end it has a it has a moment of hubris has a baddie and yeah has a, a, a nice visual uh, which is something you can see so so stories about yeah, irish, do, irish ha- has that doesn't it yeah. it's got peg and dev baddies when will it end, Derek? You said that it would have an end. When will it end? This is this is the thing. I suppose the the, the idea is you're you're kind of um you're, you usually enter these stories in the second act, and that like, the the idea is that each kind of individual thing is an ending. There's a moment of hubris when someone is is cut out, or you know is is seen to is seen to look bad, or, or that a particular point is proven a prejudice is proven. Like so much, someone said once that common sense is uh, is a, is a mixture of prejudice and hindsight. Yeah, and sorry, yeah, there's no actual such thing as common sense, like in the in, in anticipatable in the anticipatable world. I'm, I was thinking. Yeah, I think that's very true. Yeah, I was thinking, which obviously Ed Goffman is in, in particularly interesting um, sociologist, and in that I something I've often an idea that thrills me as as someone who is from a humanities background is how sometimes ideas in science, in social science, in economics, in physics, often find a presence in uh, in art first before they actually are expressed uh, in, in these scientific terms. My old professor, Declan Kybert, we, we used a great phrase in Inventing Ireland, uh, his, um, his masterpiece about English and Irish literature, he said that uh, before it is invented, it is imagined. Mm. And I've, I've mentioned before how the idea of the, of, of space being the first use of of space to refer to the the vastness between the stars and planets, because but and as, as differentiated from the night sky, which was used before, yeah. that was in Milton's Paradise Lost. Oh, wow. And the idea sometimes that some of these um, and there's a, there's a few other examples of this idea where the, an, an idea is expressed by a poet before it's before it's kind of hammered out by an actual yeah. scientist and said, and a lot of um. Goffman's ideas they overlapped with his his interest in the theatre itself and his some theatrical ideas. I know his sister he worked in the film industry before he became a sociologist and his sister was an actress. Yeah, and this this there's a this seems to be this overlap with I guess with Goffman's theory of of life as performance and Stanislavski's kind of ideas of the acting method and the link between acting and psychology and how. There's this bridge between the uh, truth on stage and uh, the psychological truth inside the actor's mind. Yeah, I think it's very true uh, to connect. I mean, Goffman's 
you can see Gothman anywhere and everywhere. And I, w- I wish it would enter like business more. I wish people who were involved in any sort of like business, any sort of like domain where you make money, like just just employ a sociologist, just one. <laughs> um, but I do see him very much in in that. Yeah, of course, it's very evident his background in acting um, and his background in performance because of his perception of, well, like you said, this comes from poetry first, right? Didn't Shakespeare say that all the words a stage and that we're actors on a stage? Yeah. And that's what we are. That's the way we perceive ourselves. And that's what Goffman argues and very well, because it still stands the test of time. There's some things that he says, particularly in stigma, that are, you know, outdated in respect of, of uh, LGBTQ people. Um, but again, that was at the time. And this was pre-Pride when or pre-Stonewall when he wrote stigma. Um, so people hadn't actually started in the main reclaiming a stigmatized identity, um, particularly with disability as well. You know, some things are don't stand the test of time in that sense. Yeah. Uh, but the the research itself still stands, and I think it's it's very much connected to art and the way we present things to people. And when you think of artwork as in actual paintings and physical artworks, you know what what the uh, artist intended is not necessarily what you perceive from it what everybody what what art means to people can be different and mean a thousand different things but that's not necessarily what was un- intended by the artist so the internal identity or intent is not necessarily and you can't make it match the external identity because people have their own lives and their own consciousness and their own experiences that will inform their interpretation of that thing that phenomenon that's this is a really interesting thing because in 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 religion and in law this idea of of establishing the original intent as as beyond us as as what actually is 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 legitimately interpretable from a law or from a religious text yeah. is massive theory and, and in the I know in the Supreme Court thing Anthony Scalia was this was obsessed with the idea of what the actual yeah. uh, the 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 original intent of the authors that of is the, the constitution dumbest thing ever like that is the dumbest thing I mean that that is a it's like you said it's a it's a illegal interpretation interpretation tool that you use for legislation um, uh, like what was the intent of this um, uh, particular piece of legislation Um, it's also seen in what's called the mischief rule what mischief was this piece of legislation brought in to prevent or to stop Mm -hmm. Um, but to try and put yourself in the shoes of I don't know a big pile of slave owning racists (laughs) in 1789 or thereabouts I don't know man maybe stop doing that (laughs) That is the most insane way to interpret a constitution. Mm. First of all, you're in a Supreme Court with some women, Antonin. There's a few of them who still do that now. I can't remember who exactly, but I know it's still common. I think Kavanaugh might be one. Um, but, you know, they, I feel like the, the founding fathers would have an issue with the fact that there's women on your Supreme Court. I think they'd be more aghast at that than try to interpret the law. And Catholics. <laughs> Just the craziest stupid thing. Scalia wouldn't have been very popular with them as, 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 a, as an Italian Catholic. Yeah, he wouldn't have been. No, exactly. But, then it's but I find that very often that that particular line of, of legal interpretation, mm, it's used in some circumstances. Like, absolutely no, it wouldn't have, they wouldn't have wanted women to have abortions. Uh, what do you mean? Own a load of guns? Yeah, own an AK-47? Give an AK-47 to a child? Yeah, that, sorry, that's fine. <laughs> they would have wanted that. How do you know? <laughs> It's extraordinary. And, and again, in religion as well. And I remember, like, um, I'm just fascinated by, I guess, um, people who are interested in, in, in the Bible from a progressive perspective. And I'm thinking about our, our great friend, uh, C.C. C. Byer, who was a guest on the show once, and yeah. Rabbi Dana Ruttenberg. And I think when you when people have cited religious texts to defend kind of um, 
I guess homophobia especially and yeah. like the, you taking a kind of single line out saying look I've I've looked through this massive book and I found you know seven points when it, it alludes to maybe uh, homosexual acts possibly being bad I'm only using this one particular English translation of it even though it's written in a different language and I'm not looking at the context of the broader document to bring it back to Goffman a little bit like mm. you know everything in context you know it's so important to have the, the context for the the bigger picture and, and not even just um Goffman, but um, Heidegger, who was a, a big old Nazi, mm-hmm. who developed um, hermeneutic phenomenology, it's called. And essentially, yeah, you have to bring your context to what you're understanding. So you have to realize that you are a person and you have a lived experience and that lived experience is informing what you're talking about or how you perceive somebody. So your perception of a phenomenon is so, so intertwined with who you were and your life background. Um so as somebody who's a monoglot, perhaps, living in Ireland, who doesn't really interact much with Irish speakers, speaking Irish or seeing somebody speaking Irish can be weird. It could be scary. It could be like make you angry, expose the fact that you don't speak Irish and that makes you uncomfortable. Um, and there's a whole host of reasons for that. And I think people perhaps aren't, some people don't maybe, and then maybe certain radio stations encourage people not to interrogate the reasons why why does this make you angry like a little bit of critical thinking why does this particular issue make you have such a feeling what is it about it um and not to to ring the post-colonial claxon again but i do think there's an element of post-colonialism involved in it and a self-consciousness among people who perhaps don't speak irish and how they feel when they see people actually doing it beyond the performative way that is so visible um, so in the sort of invisible way, it's not that invisible. I mean, you, if you look for it, you'll find it. Um, but, you know, the the relatively in society invisible way that people actually live through Irish and speak through Irish and how that can be cause a reaction because of everyone's context. Mm-hmm. So we look at the way Irish exists internally and externally. It, in, internally in people's in people's hearts and people's thoughts and people's you know, homes and with their with their immediate friends and then externally in terms of how it exists in society how it's seen and how people who are maybe at an early stage of their journey with irish perceive what they're entering does the concept of performance give us any clue as to how we can advance irish further well, I'm not sure if, if it, I mean, it can tell us how, I mean, you can't force people to think a certain way or you can't make them think a certain way. They're always going to have their own experiences. And that is so dependent on the individual. And yeah, there's a zeitgeist issue as well. Like how are, how is, how is Irish perceived in the main? And I think, well, I don't think, I'm not here to criticise any organisation that has an Irish language name. I don't like yeah more of them please like you know I love seeing it um, and I don't necessarily want to criticise people who use Irish in a performative way when they're on the bus or 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 not when they're the, I mean like when they're you know abroad on the bus or they might throw in an Irish word here and there and like this is not a criticism of those people that's just you know life but I think the performative nature of Irish yeah it's it's a it's an unfortunate reaction or uh, sort of uh, part of of the society we live in that is very often regulated to the realm of performance. Um, but I think the counter to that is no performance at all, and I think that's even worse. Um, it is nice to see Irish. I'm not denying that. It is lovely to see, and I will be more likely to purchase something if I can see that they've been using Irish, because I want to put my money where my mouth is and show people that it's important to me 
this language is important to me. Sure, it's a marketing technique and that person is, or that organization is trying to earn money. Fine, I don't care. Take my money. <laughs> um, so I think, it, I think there is a positive from it, the performative nature of Irish, and people enjoy that. So I don't think necessarily that that's bad. What I do think is bad is the soul association of Irish with um, performativeness. And I think part of that, Goffman talks about known aboutness. Um, and when he says what is known about a, a person or a group and the known aboutness, unfortunately, of Irish and Irish speakers can be very much connected to um, performativeness. Um, and so I think that's damaging. And us as being having this stereotype as twee Irish speakers who, you know, a tourist can come and look at, which I so understand why people want to do that. I'm not criticizing that, but I think there is a damage involved in that. Um, and I think uh, it sort of negates the real life lives that people live through Irish. Um, and I think, yeah, the the soul association and the soul known aboutness of Irish as being performative, um, that's what we need to tackle rather than, you know, people actually using Irish as a performance. I don't mind that, but I'd rather there was more visibility in a non-performative net way of Irish, mm-hmm. um, Irish speakers, so that they're just people living their lives, you know, if you take, for example, Russ Naroon, which is a fantastic soap opera, mm. um, on T.G. Gahart, those are people living their lives, right? <laughs> but they're living their lives in Irish. There's nothing performative about the way they go on. Sure, the unique selling point of Russ Naroon is that it's an Irish language soap opera, um, but it's also a class soap opera. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, it doesn't, the language do, isn't the storyline. The language is just the medium through which people communicate and the medium through which the stories are told. So I think maybe more of that sort of thing where... The Irish isn't the unique selling point, but the content is. And Irish is just sort of the stand, the, the sort of communication tool used. Like Black Forty Seven. Yeah, man, isn't that so good? And your and your man's Australian, and he and he he, he got stuck into his Irish. I did not know he was Australian. Go away! What a legend! Oh yeah, absolute legend. <laughs> yeah, gosh, we, should, so we should probably take him up. He was in a he was in a great film called Animal Kingdom before he was in, in Black Forty Seven. Uh, it was a, this crime drama set in Melbourne. But that's I would love to have him on. I would lose my shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, hopefully, I'll see what I can do. I mean, Pierce Ryan, who uh, who wrote uh, Black Forty Seven, was in in college with me. We've uh, we're not very actively in touch. He's not he's not on social media much or anything like that. Yeah. But yeah, um, a great talent. He was uh, all, all, you heard it here, folks. We're going to have Black Forty Seven cast members on. <laughs> but there's there's another film which seems to be um, is is Aracht part of this series? Or is that it's it's just a, a, another Irish language film on the same topic, or is it? Uh, I don't know. I haven't seen it yet. Um, but I know it's our our submission for the um, what are they calling it these days? The foreign film or something? I don't know. Foreign, they used to call it foreign language. Yeah, I had a big issue with that. <laughs> That's yeah, that raises all sorts of issues. But yeah, it is that one that Aaron is putting forward. And yeah, we yeah. will hopefully talk about that more soon. But in yeah, the meantime, so. Gary McAvoy, thank you as always for your wonderful insights. Thank you very much. Thank you for letting me rant for forty five <laughs> minutes about um, my research. <laughs> Great stuff. I just love Goffman, guys. Yeah, good old Goffman. <laughs> so until the next time, it's a slot for me. And a slot for me. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Mother Folklore is a product of the Headstuff Podcast Network. We are produced by Brian. Art is by Kirsten Scheel. You can contact the show in the WhatsApp number, in our show notes.
or Motherfolklore at stuff.org. You can support the continued production of the Motherfolklore podcast at patreon.com forward slash Derek. There are discounts for annual subscriptions, or you can subscribe monthly. It's all good. We'd love to have you involved. Until the next time, mind yourselves. This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network. What are you doing? What am I doing? No, sorry, I'm talking to my laptop. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, okay.